The guy's name uh, was a DJ, a uh, Dutch DJ named Junkie XL. Well, the Presley people didn't want Elvis's music associated with somebody whose name was Junkie. Mark's getting on. Yeah, he's getting on. I'm excited. I'm super excited. Hey, Mark. Good. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. <laughs> thank you, too. <laughs> hey, Jesse. Yeah. I, I, need to th- I need to thank you. I, um, every morning after I exercise and make breakfast, my wife and I, and we've done this new thing where I read to her from stuff. And when we finished Marcus Aurelius' Meditations, I said, I got to figure out what's next. So I picked up that Pema Chodron uh-huh. book on uh, the pocketbook, and uh, I read three or four passages every morning. It's really a nice way to uh, start the day. So thank you for that tip. Oh, man. I'm glad. I'm glad you like it. (laughs) it. What's going on, guys? Well, hey, Mark. I mean, so when uh, we did the podcast with you the first time, people were stoked. They were like, we had some good reviews in the sense of like, oh, my gosh, like we need to hear more stories from Mark. So Jesse and I have always said to you, and, and from the very beginning, you're a wealth of knowledge of stories. And we thought this is... Whom would we want back, you know, continuously to continue telling some amazing Nike stories? And I think, obviously, we just need to have you come back. I mean, we're listening to the consumer. <laughs> so we're yeah. Just, so. Yeah, guys, be careful what you wish for because <laughs> I love telling my stories. And since Nike doesn't want me to do the book, um, I need an outlet. So you guys are great. Oh, no. This is, this is what we wanted. We wanted this because, like you said, like – your manuscript, like reading it was so good. And I was just like, man, people need to know at least some of the stories. Um, and it's just because it's, it's unbelievable with the, with the context and, and just, you know, the start to middle to finish of, of each story. It was just amazing. So we had to have you on again. Hey guys, have you connected with Jana Panfilio? Did you ever work with Jana at, at night? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah we, Gina. we actually had her on uh, our our podcast. Okay, good because I was going to say, you know, she's starting this uh, alumni network, and and it'd be a good source for you guys for both guests and to increase your listenership to to you know as she gets that rolled out um, and more and more people join in. Um, there are people who would both be contributors and consumers of what you guys are doing. So Yeah, she actually um, kind of filled us in like when she was starting this uh, alumni okay. network. So we are involved with her um, some way, somehow. We're just continuously keeping that dialogue open with her. Fantastic. So what do you, what do you want to talk about today? <laughs> Where do you want to start? <laughs> um I don't know, Jesse, like, I, you know, for me, I'm really into that, um, that story where you in Michigan, you know, during the sugar bowl, um, puts the pour some sugar on me. I mean, I thought that one was a really good one for me. That, that, that's, that one's a cute, well, you know what? So many of my stories tie back to other stuff. So the, uh, the guy who contacted me about, uh, the use and I, and then I'll get into the story. His dad is a famous, uh, was a famous New York uh, entertainment lawyer, and, and he had a specialty in kind of dead clients, dead celebrities. So he had Jimi Hendrix, he had John Lennon, he had uh, Miles Davis. Um, you know, pretty much if it was a dead musician, this guy represented him. So, but he also represented Yoko for. So when we, uh, when we get into the little uh, problems on revolution. He was Yoko's attorney, but that let's, if you want, we'll save that one. That one, that one's a good hour story, but it, it is, <laughs> it is probably the, the best story that I have. Ooh, I think. Okay. Uh, most, mostly because it showed Nike, what the power of advertising, you know, um, you know, strangely enough, by virtue of getting sued by the Beatles, I think it also, opened some eyes that it wasn't enough to make great product and to have the world's best athletes, you know, wearing it. 
It also helped to have messaging that consumers were dying to con consume. So um, that, that's a long story, but I definitely want to do that one with you guys. But if you let's do it, let's just do it. Okay, well, that's good. Okay, <laughs> well, we'll save the sugar bowl for another time. Uh, okay, so we'll flashback to 1986. Um, Nike had experienced phenomenal growth from its inception. 1986, Reebok comes out with uh, soft leather shoes. The, the Nike guys, I think rightfully so, said people shouldn't want to use those kinds of shoes to exercise in, okay? And so uh, Nike had the technology. They could have made soft leather shoes like that. They didn't. The aerobics boom hit, um, much to the amazement of Nike's executives, even though women would taking Reebok to the gyms and it was blowing out after one or two uses, they kept buying it anyways. So Nike had to do its first layoff ever in 1986. And, and things, you know, things were not bleak, but you know, it was, it was not something Nike was used to. So 1987 comes around and Nike's trying to figure out, you know, how do, how do we re-energize the brand? So I don't know if it was Tinker, whoever came up with the concept, but, you know, we've been promoting that we have air in the shoes, and but the consumer has never been able to see that. Okay, so how do we show that? Okay, well, we'll put a little window in the sole of the shoe, and they can look in and see part of the earbag. And then it was left to widen. Well, how do we tell consumers about it? So the folks at Widen, uh, it was uh, Janet Champ, who had been an admin, at Wyden, but somehow she teamed up with Susan Hoffman, who's been one of their longstanding uh, creatives. And they said, you know, well, it's kind of a revolution in shoe technology that Nike is wanting to show the consumers. So, you know, what, what, what can we do that shows revolution? So the first thing they did, I think they saw a Lou Reed ad that he had done for Honda and it was shot with a eight millimeter camera and black and white. So, oh, wow, let's do this like revolutionary shoe. Uh, I'm sorry, revolutionary camera technique that people weren't doing at the time. So they had that. And then they sat down in the brain trust and said, hey, you know, be cool. Let's let's use the Beatles song Revolution as the soundtrack for the ad. So that was a great idea that, you know, the, the problem was Beatles didn't make their music available for advertising. So what had happened with the Beatles was uh, in, in all of music, you have the publishing rights, which are basically the songs and the lyrics written by whoever the artists were, and then the master recording rights, which were, you know, the song itself. And once the song's out in public, anybody can re-record it. You have to pay a small fee. So like there are, you know, 200 people have done Hey Jude. There's probably a dozen people have done Revolution. And all they had to do was pay the Beatles a small fee. So the Beatles in, God, early 70s, I think, they sold their rights to all of the publishing, all the songs that predominantly was John and Paul had written, you know, the few that Ringo and George had done was part of it. They sold it all to this guy, Sir Lou Grade, who was this big London impresario. And to his company called Northern Lights. And Lou held it for a while, and then I don't know if he was cash-strapped, but he wanted to do something else, and he needed some money, kind of like the Red Sox, you know, selling Babe Ruth so the owner could do a bye-bye Nanette on, on Broadway. Lou sold <laughs> the, the catalog to this Australian venture capitalist named Robert Holmes Accord. So Holmes Accord held it for a while, and he wanted to sell it. And so there were two bidders, and the two bidders were Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney. And, and the funny part about that is McCartney is the one who told Michael previously that, you know, if you're looking for investments, buying song catalogs is a really good thing to do. So Michael outbid Paul for it, and as part of the deal, Michael had to fly to Australia and perform at Holmes Accord's wife's birthday party. And you can go online, and if you if you Google Robert Holmes at court, you will find photos of Michael Jackson with him and his wife. So Michael takes the catalog, flies back to L.A. Um, Paul's a little pissed because um, 
he felt like, hey, I, I have the wherewithal to buy my own music back and John's music, and that's what I want to do. But Michael was having none of it. So our people in London tried to figure out how to get the catalog, right? Yeah, how to get the publisher's rights. If you don't get the publisher's rights, there's nothing you can do. You have That's the one must-have. So they couldn't figure it out. I Google Michael Jackson, and I get the name of his attorney, and his famous civil rights attorney. And I contacted him, and he said, well, you know, you need to contact this lady, Pat Lucas, at this company called SBK. And SBK had bought out the catalog rights to, um, uh, what's it called, uh, CBS Songs. And SBK were three guys. Uh, I thought the first guy, the second guy was Marty Bandian. The third guy was Charles Koppelman, who were famous, famous guys in the music industry. And if you are friends of the show Billions, the name Koppelman will be familiar because Brian Koppelman, uh, Charles's son, is the guy who did Billions. He also wrote Rounders. He's, he's become a pretty prominent guy. I, one of, when he was still in the music industry, I got to do a music license uh, with Brian, but he quickly figured out that doing music licenses, you know, isn't what he wanted to be doing and went on to become a, a really talented screenwriter. Um, but back to SBK, I, I found SBK and I contacted the lady who was like working, you know, the catalog. So this is, she had to work with Michael Jackson when projects came in. So the lady had a 14-year-old son who's a huge Michael Jordan fan. So I contacted her and I said, yeah, Michael will have a cameo in this ad for, you know, a second and a half. And she was very enthused. She said, okay, we own the rights. We can do whatever we want. But as a courtesy to Yoko, anything that John wrote or co-wrote, we go to her and see if it's okay. So she went to Yoko. She told him what the ad campaign was. Yoko said, okay, that, that, that's fine. Go ahead if Michael thinks it's a good use of the song. So we had the publishing rights, okay? So now we wanted to get the Beatles version, okay? Because no one had ever used the Beatles version of one of their songs in an ad. So this is 1987 until 2019. No one else had used a Beatles version of their music in an ad until Google did it. So I, I had a goal that I wanted to retire having been the only person ever to be able to license a Beatles track for an ad. And, and I was able to do that. So that's one of my proudest accomplishments. Oh, awesome. <laughs> but, then I got, but then I got Nike sued by the Beatles. Oh, before I got them sued. So we had to that. <laughs> the company that owned the master rights was called... Uh, EMI, Electric something in the UK, and they own Capitol Records in America. And unbeknownst to me, they had the agreement that, um, uh, let's see, was it Apple? Yeah, Apple had, had done with uh, Capitol Records. A Apple, not the music, Apple, the music company, not the uh, computer guys, uh, had done with... Uh, Capital was written not like on one page, and it said, "Hey, we give, we grant you the rights to do, um, you know, use our music in North America." Okay, so the thought was, okay, you're pressing vinyls, you, you're doing uh, other things uh, with the music, so you have the rights to do that. We'll take our royalty back. Well, uh, the Beatles at some point realized that. Wait a minute, with the advent of the CD and other things those rights were worth a hell of a lot more than they were making back from capital. So they sued, they had two or three lawsuits with capital trying to get the rights back. I knew none of this at the time. Okay. All I knew was our guys wanted to use it. I contacted capital and they said, we're not interested in talking to you. So I had to figure out, well, how do I get them interested in talking to us? So I talked to Pat Lucas, the lady at SBK. And I told, you know, Hey, we can't get in to see Capital, so we're going we're to have, you know, somebody else do the cover. Maybe we'll have Richie Havens do it or the Thompson Twins. And then I came up with what I thought would be the best strategy. I said, you know, and also 
we're going to talk to Julian Lennon and see if he wants to do a cover. Now, if you know your pop history, Julian was John's uh, son with Cynthia Lennon from his first marriage. Okay. Yeah. Well, now you got Yoko involved and she's protecting Sean's birthright. And the last thing she wants to do is see Julian Lennon do a cover of the song for Nike ad. So Pat talks to her and, and Yoko says, well, you know what? I will, uh, let me get involved in this. So Yoko sets up a meeting with this guy, Sam Havertoy, who had been Yoko and John's business manager. And then after John was killed, she became Yoko's, he became Yoko's romantic interest. So we fly down to LA, me, uh, Bill Davenport, Dan Wyden, and Susan Hoffman to meet with the guys from Capital and EMI over in the UK, and then Sam. And Sam starts the meeting. No, the guys, no, the guy from EMI says, you, you know that the Beatles music is, is the crown jewel of our collection, and we, we just would never use it, allow it to be used in advertising. And Sam goes, Yoko would really like to see this happen. Okay, so it, it immediately, these guys are always, even though they're always suing each other, they always have to work together. Because if there's a documentary about the Beatles, Capital has to provide the music. Yoko and, and the other uh, Beatles have to agree to let their, the images be used in the documentary. So they're all either suing each other or working together on documentaries and shit. So once he said that, she, Sam said that, I go, oh, wow, this is, this is too easy. So we ended up getting the rights, and we run the ad, and then like a week later, the Beatles sue us. Oh, and, and they said, you know, basically, they never gave the rights to capital to allow the music to be used in advertising. And, you know, I'm trying to think, how can I explain this to anybody you know, that I didn't know that was going on. So fortunately, the amount of publicity that Nike got by being sued by the Beatles was, was phenomenal. You, you couldn't uh, imagine, like it's on the Today Show, it's on the news. Uh, it, the only thing that would have been better if, had we been in the internet age, it would have blown up. I mean, we were getting letters from people saying they will never, you know, wear Nike shoes again or let their kids. There were other people you know, writing to tell us, you know, how great it was that we were exposing another generation to the Beatles music. It was, uh, someday I'll show you guys my, my three ring binder with all the stuff about including an article in the Inquirer, right? In the Inquirer, where Michael Jackson is saying, you know, because Michael Jackson got a lot of shit saying, how could you let them use, you know, if you didn't let them use the publishing rights, this never would have happened. And Michael... The article in the Inquirer said that the ghost of John Lennon came to him one night <laughs> and said that he should license the music to Nike for this ad campaign. I mean, you, you can't you can't make this shit up. I mean, the stuff that that happened over that. So we had a fly back to New York. Knight called the press conference. So we, we flew back. It's the only time I was ever on the corporate chat, and. We did a press release, and I my contribution was the line that, you know, we are mere pawns in an ongoing lawsuit between Capitol Records and Apple Records. We didn't do anything wrong. So we go, Knight has the press conference in which he invites Yoko, Paul, George, and Ringo to meet with him. No lawyers, no business people, just him and them, and if they want to tell him that they don't want this ad campaign to continue, he'll stop it. And I'm like, oh shit, I hope they don't contact him. Because <laughs> that, you know, this ad campaign is great. And I didn't know whether Phil just wanted to meet the Beatles. But, you know, it, it, was, it was nuts. And then, you know, Phil took us all to see uh, Les Mis and uh, it, was, it was a pretty fun endeavor. Um, suffice it to say that they didn't agree to meet with him. The lawsuit continued. The ad campaign continued, and eventually Capital and Apple settled, okay, the lawsuit. Neither Nike nor Wyden and Kennedy ever signed the settlement agreement. Nobody asked us to sign it. We never signed a settlement agreement. 
our only you know exposure was the legal fees that we had to incur in the beginning of the lawsuit. But I really think that that campaign um, and the attention. Yeah, I mean, you don't always want your campaigns to be, you know, uh, un, un, undergirded by the fact that you're getting sued by the most popular uh, rock band of all time. Um, but I think it, it showed people the, the power of advertising. I think Phil, if, if when you get Phil on your podcast, ask him about it. <laughs> I think he would say that that. Uh, it was one of the seminal events in the uh, history of Nike marketing, that ad campaign. Um, and I know it's, you know, it's, it's come back any number of times where, um, well, let's segue to an, another nice uh, uh, story. Uh, we did a Kobe ad and we um, wanted to use the sign. I think it was when, he, they, didn't they win three championships in a row? They I did. Think they yeah, yeah. Though. That was the Shaq era for sure. I think it was two yeah. with Shaq, but then one. Or oh, anyway, yes, they did win three. So, so we're doing the Beatles song. You know, one, two, three, four. Can I have a little more? Right. So we, we got Andre three thousand to Andre Benjamin, I guess his name, to do the song. Okay. So he goes in the studio and. He decides as he's doing it that he's going to switch a couple words, like minor things. Instead of one, two, three, four, can I have a little more? He goes, one, two, three, four, can I have a little bit more? Okay. So he does that in a couple places, but usually people don't change Beatles lyrics. So I had to go back to the uh, guys who I licensed it from. Now it was being represented by Sony, I think, at that time, and explain to the guy uh, – uh, John Campanelli that, hey, um, we're kind of screwed here. He changed the lyrics. We can't get him back in. And Campanelli had been on a uh, uh, industry panel where they were ranking the top five uses of music ever in advertising. And Revolution, I think, was number two. So I figured, okay, we got pretty good chances that this guy is going to agree to allow us to change it. So we got to uh, we got to change the lyrics. Everybody was cool. About six years ago, I'm in New York at a restaurant with my friend, and it his uh, his friend is the owner of the restaurant. And I look over, and my friend says, "See that guy over there?" I go, "Yeah." He says, "That's Andre Benjamin." I said, "Oh, I gotta I gotta tell him the story, right?" So the guy said, "Wait, wait, wait. Let me let me have my friend see if that's okay. He does he may not want you." you know, bothering his celebrities with, with stories. So brings the, the, the owner over, I tell him the story. He says, oh, yeah, go ahead. So I go over and I introduce myself, Mr. Benjamin, I'm Mark Thomas. I, I worked at Nike and, you know, we used you in, uh, you know, the Kobe ad with the Beatles song. And he smiles. I said, um, I'm not sure if you wear this, but in, in two different places, you changed the lyrics when you were singing the song. And he smiles and goes, Oh man, I really, you gave me the list. I really tried hard not to do that. So yeah, it worked out okay. So, you know, thanks for your efforts. I didn't know if I could expense picking up his tab for lunch. I just went back to the booth and <laughs> <laughs> I told my friends the story. <laughs> but um, that's that's the Beatles story. And, and literally every time in the intervening 30 years that I saw an ad where they're using uh, a Beatles song, I go, oh God, is that? Did they use? Did they use the Beatles? And nope, they had sound likes. They did other things, but nobody was able to uh, to use the Beatles um, music until Google did it. So that's, that's my contribution to uh, American pop history. <laughs> oh, man. I think you're spot on too. Mark, because that spot is so iconic. And I mean, you know, I think I was what, probably 12 years old or something when it came out. And it's just, it was what got everybody focused on Nike at the time. It, it really, you know, we, t t the way it was shot, the fact that, you know, visible air. And then, um, I, this is probably a story that can get out. There's a famous thing in advertising history where Volvo, I think it was Volvo, to show how sturdy the cars were. They had a bunch of Volvos lined up. And then they had a monster truck or something go over them and, and like none of the roofs, you know, buckled at all. Okay. And then they found out later that when they did the ad, all of the roofs were reinforced. 
Okay, that's not that's not the Volvo that you buy off the lot. Okay, and I hope I don't get you guys sued. It may not have been Volvo. It was somebody. <laughs> but if, if you go back and look at the Revolution ad, there'll be a I, I don't know if they call it a foot stomp or something, but it's it's the shoe on a um, uh, treadmill. You know, the shoe shot in the ad, and you see the shoe compressing when the foot hits, right, and then bounces back up. And I'm not sure. I think they had to, like, stick a pinhole in the airbag for it to do what they wanted it to do on the treadmill. So it was, you know, just kind of an example of, you know, sometimes you have to take a little liberty in, in your ad shooting for it to come out the way you want it to come out. But the shoe was the shoe was transformative for Nike, you know, showing the window. Um, you know, kind of the rest is history. It bounced right back, you know, by Reebok to the point where what year? Let's see, that was like eighty-seven. So that's thirty. I don't know, forty years later. Thirty. However, many years later, now Master P and Baron Davis are now looking to buy and resurrect Reebok as a brand. That's right. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I heard that too. It's uh, I, as, long as, they, as long as they don't use any Beatles music in your advertising, they won't be very successful with it. <laughs> Mark, I have a question for you because I know that I, I was definitely aware of um, another instance once we did like, you know, the so-and-so anniversary of Air Max or like another launch of Air Max where they were like, oh yeah, let's get the song again and we'll do a new ad. And were you ever, were you around when people yeah. were contemplating trying to like bring that out again? Yeah, they- they did. Um, and I don't know if she's still around. Uh, I think her name was Juliana Hatfield. Oh. She was a singer. And maybe she's related to Tinker. I hadn't thought about that just now. There's a version of that song with uh, her doing it. And um, it was nice. Yeah, very different than the Beatles version. Uh, also, though, if you go on YouTube, you can see another ver- cut to... Uh, let's see, was that on YouTube? Was that on a reel I have? We did a Howie Long ad. He was going to be for Nike's first cross trainer. They they were going to use Howie, and um, they did. They had a version, a really slowed down version of uh, Revolution, which we thought about doing. But I think people thought, you know, getting sued once by the Beatles was probably enough. <laughs> <laughs> they, they 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 nixed that. They went with Bo Jackson. We got Bo Diddley. So. Um, but yeah, I think you can find. I, I'm almost positive it's Juliana Hatfield, and the Widen guys could find it if you can't find it on uh, Google. It was a nice ad. Um, so, Mark, you did you just drop that instead of Bo knows it was going to be Howie knows? <laughs> it wasn't going to be Howie knows. It, it, it was just going to be Howie as a cross trainer. And then, like, we had we had footage of him playing basketball. A couple of. Not not the full realm of stuff that Bo was able to do, but how he played a couple sports. I don't know if we ever did any of them. You know, ask Wilski whether we ever used Howie as a uh, as a cross training guy. But you know, they they came up with with the when when they signed Bo, he he was the perfect you know playing two sports like that. He was the uh, perfect guy for cross training. Yeah. So I gotta ask, like, how like. Was your email and phone just blowing up with this whole situation, Mark? Like leadership just hitting you up email. like crazy. Or yeah, email, I should just say, right? Or maybe, I don't even know, right? What was, Mail. <laughs> so, I mean, what was that like? John, we'll have to look at, okay, 1987, there was no text. That's right. I keep on. <laughs> was it email in that? When did Al Gore invent the email? <laughs> Was it email in 1987? No. I got a lot of no. memos from Oh, you're right. I'm, I'm thinking AOL. Even AOL wasn't even invented. I think. That was like 90s. Yeah, I think so. Oh, my God. So so I, I lucked out because, yeah, my phone would have blown up. Um, you know, uh, people were cool about it. I mean, the, the campaign, it had – and, and this is my thought. You would watch the 6 o'clock news, and they would have like – a. Uh, in back of the commentator, it would be a split screen and on a, like uh, a diagonal line and on the top half, they would show the Air Max and on the bottom half, they would show the Beatles, okay? And, and the commentator would be talking about how the Beatles sued Nike. My view was 
people remember more what they see than what they hear. So they saw this and they, oh, Beatles somehow must be associated with Nike. <laughs> You know, so we had, we get a free endorsement out of the deal from from the lawsuit. <laughs> what was um, Phil's reaction? Where well, I know he was like, you know, when you said he was, you know, wanting to come into the meetings. But what was was he kind of like a cool cat? Was he just like, you know, what it is, what it is. Let's just keep on going. Or oh yeah, absolutely. And I won't I won't say who, but there was one guy around Nike said, let's do a one eight hundred number in USA Today. And let people vote on whether we should continue with the ad campaign. Okay, this guy wasn't a marketing guy. All the marketing guys were like, God, why would we do that? This campaign is great. We're getting all this publicity. We're going to tell people, yeah, vote on whether Nike should pull its ad campaign. Can you imagine if they did that with Kaepernick? Let's see what people, how people vote in USA Today on whether they like the Kaepernick. <laughs> um, you know, Knight's thing was we didn't do anything wrong. You know, we licensed the music from the people we were supposed to license the music from. The fact that, you know, what the Beatles were trying to do was, in the lawsuit, was saying, hey, judge, Capitol took the music. They let these people use it in advertising without our permission. We want all the rights back. Okay, so it wasn't the, you know, the, the $500,000 that we paid for the licensing thing. It was the fact that hundreds of millions of dollars are to be made off of CDs, right? In, in, in uh, royalties over the next, you know, two decades and whatever, whatever other formats the music could be used in. So, um, you know, we literally, we were a pawn in this lawsuit between um, Capital and Apple. And, and Phil, you know, where Nike is in the right, you know, he, I, my view, and I've said this to people, I don't, I've never asked Phil about this, but, Knight would rather spend, you know, $2 million in legal fees defending a position that we're right on than settle for $50,000 extortion fee from somebody who feed the nuisance value. You know, Nike will never, they'll never litigate this suit. It'll cost them too much money. Knight, that's not where Knight ever was. It was, if we're in the right, then you got a legal department and you get outside lawyers and you go with the fact that we didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, that was, you know, uh, it was fortunate for me that that's the uh, position he took. And then I used to always tell people that, you know, they would ask, why did, why did you move from legal to uh, advertising? And my stock answer was, well, after I got sued by the Beatles, people felt I'd be doing less damage <laughs> in advertising than I was doing in the legal department. Hey, Mark, did you just drop that it was 500000 for the use of that song? It was. It's. It's even better than that. It was two hundred and fifty thousand for the publishing rights no right, for North America, and another two hundred and fifty thousand for the master recording. I tell people, you know, I don't know how many years after that that uh, uh, who Microsoft used "Start Me Up," yeah, right, in an ad, and they it was widely known. They paid three million dollars. So. Every time I would go to license a big piece of music, they and I told them what our budget was, they would say, well, Microsoft paid $3 million for the Rolling Stones song. I said, Bill Gates may want to open his wallet that wide to license music. I can tell you right now, Phil Knight doesn't want to open his wallet that wide. But I, I, I would have to hear all the time how much. Um, and I tell you, if you, if you polled people and say, you know, how much did you know, Revolution cost Nike? It would be in in the millions that people would have, you know, assumed. Uh, set assumed for that. So, was that still kind of a large amount, though? Just up to that point that you were involved yeah. in negotiating. Yeah, uh, you know, the only until I retired, the only significant piece of music that I didn't do for Nike was when they licensed uh, Randy Newman's "I Love L.A." for an ad campaign. Mm -hmm. I can't believe that that was more than, you know, $50,000. So, so spending $500,000 for uh, the music was, was a big deal for Nike, but people recognize, Hey, you're using Beatles music in, a, in an ad, you know, and then there was the whole thing, you know, like all the letters that, you know, John wrote this song in 1968 while he was in Paris and, and students were revolting and stuff. And it's a song about revolution and, here, Nike is using it, you know, to talk about a revolutionary new, uh, you know, attribute of their sneakers. 
Um, so there was a lot of that. And I would also say that I, I think it opened up the, um, I don't want to say floodgates, but it made the use, using music, popular music in advertising a lot more acceptable. I mean, for years it was, you know, Paul Simon wouldn't let his music, Joni Mitchell, um, uh, Neil Young, Bob Dylan, none of these people would allow their music to be used in advertising. And I think pretty much everybody other than Neil Young is now recognized that if it's if it's done tastefully and well, it does expose another generation of kids to uh, somebody's music. I know I, my nephews were, you know, 10 years old, 11 years old when we did the campaign. Um, you know, I may have listened to Beatles music around the house, but I doubt it. Um, but when they saw the ad campaign, it, it did. It exposed another generation. In Yoko, when we got sued, I left that whole part out. Oh, my. Sorry about that. This is what happens when you get older, guys. <laughs> um, so we're getting, you know, I, we, we have the press conference, and I've seen the back of the conference, Yoko's attorney there, Peter Shuka. And like I said before, but for Yoko's involvement, we wouldn't have been able to secure the music. Okay, she she had Sam go down and meet with us in Capitol and tell him that she wanted this to happen. Well, Yoko's on the board of directors of Apple. So when Apple sued us, I saw Peter Shuket, the attorney at, at the press conference, said, Peter, what what the hell? Without Yoko, you know, we were happy to go and do somebody else. Without Yoko, we wouldn't have got it. And this is what we're going to do. If this lawsuit doesn't go away, we're going to sue Yoko for fraud. Okay, because she got us involved, you know, we had all the emails and every uh, uh, letters, phone conversations that we had had where it was her involvement that got it. So he was uh, I think he was concerned for his clients. So he was pleased when the lawsuit settled, too. So we didn't have to, uh, you know, get in a lawsuit with Yoko. And what was interesting, I don't know how many years later, four years later, we uh, used instant karma in an ad campaign. and. Dan and I and Bill Davenport went out to the Dakota. We met with Yoko and Sam. and She loved, you know, again, loved the idea of John's music being in, in uh, a Nike ad. And she said on a number of occasions that the music being in the ad exposed John's music to another generation of people. So I, I think she was a, a pretty astute observer of that. That's, yeah, that's awesome. awesome. No, I agree. So, Mark, what would be another like subsequent story where like you had a a big number agreement, a big number deal that you had to negotiate on behalf of the brand? Uh probably. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember the the year Jordan retired from basketball. The first year we did an ad on the Super Bowl called the popcorn tapes. Oh yeah. And, and, okay. And, and the premise of the ad was Michael's retired. What do you, what, what he's doing? It's a whole conspiracy thing. Like what is he doing? Is he playing minor league uh, basketball someplace? Uh, you know, n- nobody knew what Michael. So the rumor was that uh, he was playing basketball under assumed names, uh, Johnny Kilroy, uh, a couple others like that. And they had footage of him in a wig playing basketball and stuff. So, Conspiracy theory. So we tried to get Oliver Stone to do the act, right? And Oliver wasn't interested. So the next person they wanted to do was Bill Murray. Now, Murray is notoriously hard to get a hold of. So I knew that Ahmad Rashad was friendly with Bill Murray. So I went to New Jersey and met with Rashad Ahmad. And for the price of getting him a cameo in the ad, <laughs> he calls with me there. He calls Murray, and and we go over the ad and what we wanted Bill's role to be. And Bill said, "Ah, yeah, I don't do advertising." I said, "Well, look, it's not the kind of ad you know the money we're paying you. It's not the kind of ad where your friends are going, you know, like what kind of schmuck are you that you took money to be in a Nike ad when your principals said not to do it?" And he, he said. Pay me enough money, and I don't care if my friends call me a schmuck. <laughs> but he didn't want to do it. So the next choice was Steve Martin. 
Now, Steve Martin had never appeared in an ad either. So Steve uh, said, uh, his agent said, um, he'll do it. You can show the ad once on the Super Bowl. You can't publicize before or after that Steve Martin was in it. You know, it was this, he'll do, he'll show up on the ad shoot. He'll do it. And then he's done with it. So we were, let's see, about $50,000 apart on the deal. And, and I, I, I don't want to give you the number, sure. but it was, it was the most expensive uh, ad, a person, you know, at, at that time uh, to appear in a Nike ad. And we were about $50,000 apart. Wow. And I said to the agent, I'll tell you what, we'll put a clause in that if after the ad airs, if Bill, uh, Steve feels that, you know, he should get more money, we have the $50,000 in escrow. We'll just, no questions asked, totally his discretion. Um, call us and we'll send you the money. And um, after the ad ran, he never called to ask for more money. But he did call and I talked to him and he said, I just wanted to thank you and all the people at Widening Kennedy for how well I was treated by the Nike people and the Widening people at the ad shoot. You were all very professional, um, which was, you know, it was, it was pretty cool. I mean, he was a phenomenally nice guy about, the, I don't know whether the ad would have been more successful if people had gotten to see it, you know, several times. Um, seeing it once on the Super Bowl and then it's disappeared into the ether was, uh, you know, unfortunate. But I think, I don't know. Yeah. As of the time I retired, I think that was still the most we ever paid anybody to be in an ad. I was trying to remember, we used Diddy in a Calvin Johnson ad. We had to pay Diddy a lot of money, but I don't think we paid him Steve Martin money. Did you go on that shoot, Mark? <laughs> yeah, that was... <laughs> that was a horrible shoot. Diddy wouldn't talk to anybody other than Stacy Wall, who was directing it, and the two people from entertainment marketing. He wouldn't talk to none of the Nike advertising people, none of the wide people. So we just sat around and, and talked. And Jeff Sellers had, uh, you know, the hairstylist put Sellers here in cornrows. I go, oh my God, people are so bored. So I, I George Gervin was in LA uh, for the ESPYs. So I say, hey, George, if I can get you a cameo in the ad, will you will you come over to the ad shoot? So Stacy Wall loves George. So he on the spot wrote up a little cameo for George in the shoot. George is in the audience clapping at a speech that Diddy is giving. Um, but George came over and he entertained us for two hours about um, the final game of us, I forgot what year it was, but George was leading in the point scored race, right? And on the final game, David Thompson got 73 points. So George's game was later than David's. And um, they figured out how many points George needed. They told him he needed, you know, 57 points to win the scoring title. And so he, for two hours, he told us the story of the game and what happened. <laughs> the first quarter, I couldn't throw it in the ocean. You know, I couldn't hit anything. I would say, hey, you know, the scoring title isn't that important to me. And the coach and my teammates would tell me, no, no, George, you got to do it. You got to do it. So he ended up, he said, when he had 57 points, they told me he had the record, but he said, you know, let me get another bucket just in case they calculated wrong. So George um, won the scoring title. And if you go on YouTube and, and you do, I think if you put in do or die, there's a uh, seven or eight minute uh, animated piece that was done by the Doubleday and Cartwright guys about that game because the NBA didn't, you know, they didn't have footage of everything that happened in the NBA back in the old days. And they had no footage of the game that Thompson got 73 and Gervin got 59, you know, later in the day to win the scoring title. So they got David, Thompson and George together as the voiceovers and um, the guy from Hamilton, David Diggs, I think is the guy who does the uh, narration. And it's a, it's a great seven or eight minute piece on uh, that, that scoring title uh, uh, challenge that the two of them had. Awesome. So, so go on, go in, go in, uh, you know, YouTube right now, do or die. Do or die. I like it. We'll link, we'll link to it. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, Mark, so you were basically you were bored and you just called up George Gerfin and said, hey, come over here because we need you to tell some stories and yeah, yeah, you know, entertain us. Had, <laughs> yeah. Um, I love George. George is one of the nicest human beings you will ever meet. And, and George, after his MBA career, he set up a school, a public charter school in uh, San Antonio called the George Gervin Academy. And it takes kids from K through 12th grade, thousands and thousands of kids over the past, you know, 25 years. I mean, he's got kids going to school there now that parents graduate there. So, you know, serving an underserved community, the, the school was so successful that city of Phoenix asked him to put another one in there. And then I talked to George a couple of weeks ago, San Antonio was asking to set up another school. So whenever we wanted, I, I would tr try to find cameos for George and I would call him up, didn't have an agent, say, George, this is what we have for you. And he'd go, Mark, if you tell me that's fair, then that's fair. And yep, I'm in. And we probably did that six times. So I said, hey, George, we got a cameo. This is how much money we have. He said, okay, I got a golf time. Uh, when I get done golfing, I'll come over <laughs> to the set. And he just came over and, and entertained so us. Awesome. Man. Um, Marcus, I feel like we're just like yelling out like songs that we want you to play. Um, <laughs> but one of my favorite anecdotes from your manus manuscript is the um, the Maya Angelou story. Oh, yeah. But hey, you know what? You can't talk I about promise. it? <laughs> oh, no, no. I promise I'll come back and talk about that. I, I, I have the perfect ending to the Beatles story. Oh, okay. <laughs> We're going back to the Beatles. Okay. Sorry, sorry about that, but I got to do this. I promise I'll come back and do my answer. Okay. 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 Uh, Mikey's doing an ad called The Secret Tournament. Okay. And it's uh, the premise of the ad. All these boats go out to this ship in a harbor in Europe, and it's the greatest players in the world. It's like Fight Club on a boat in a harbor, but with soccer players. And they're playing three on three. Okay. So the Glenn Cole and John Boyler, the Widening Kennedy creatives, who probably did for 10 years all of Nike's soccer ads or football ads, and, and probably the, the most consistently excellent body of work ever done in the history of advertising was the work that Cole and Boyler did. on Because, you know, Nike would do, uh, if it was a World Cup year, they would do a one World Cup ad if it was a... Euro championship year, they do a Euro championship ad. That was pretty much it for soccer. So, you know, it's every two years they would do a spectacular ad. So they they were in a movie theater in Amsterdam and they were watching Ocean's Eleven and an Elvis Presley song came on, a little more action, a little less conversation. And then it was a minor song. It was just on for a you know, little, little bit in the um, movie. And I think it was originally from a... Uh, one of Elvis's Hawaiian movies. So they decide that's the music that they want for the ad campaign. So uh, Olander tells me he's he's got $100,000 for this. Okay. So I go to, you, you had to get, not only did you have to get the publisher in the master recording, you also had to get the Elvis Presley estate. So three parties involved. So I call, I start with the pub publisher because this guy I knew, and he said, uh, yeah, we're going to need a half a million dollars and the Presley Estate's going to need a half a million and the record label's going to need a half a million. I said, okay, well, we're a ways <laughs> apart. <laughs> we have $100,000. I'm not going to say we have 75 because we really have 100. Um, but yeah, this isn't going to happen. But rather than just letting it go, I talked to the guy in London who represented the music, the label. And I said, okay, so this is what's going on, guys. This is going to be the biggest ad spend Nike has ever had in its history on a media buy. And we're going to have the best players, and then we're going to have Ronaldo and Edgar Davids and, and Figo and all of these other guys in it. This is going to be phenomenal. And he got, the guy's a Brit, and he goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me that you're going to have all of those players in it and you're going to run it at a time when we're coming out with the Elvis 30 CD. And the Elvis 30 CD was Elvis's 30 number one hits. Okay. I said, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. He says, 
let me get back to you. And I said, the guy wanted a million and a half bucks and I get a hundred thousand. And he says, let me get back to you. So he calls up two days later and he says, done deal, $200,000. So I said, I only have a hundred. <laughs> yeah, where, where's Stefan going to get the other hundred? <laughs> yeah. I, I appreciate you, you know, coming down from one and a half million to 200,000. But, you know, so I talked to Olander. So we, we did it. And we licensed the music, okay? But they had to have somebody remix it. So the guy's name uh, was a DJ, a uh, Dutch DJ named Junkie XL. Well, the Presley people didn't want Elvis's music. <laughs> His name was Junkie. So we had to do it as JXL, okay? So we, 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 do, the, uh, we do the ad and it... It's phenomenal. The song goes to number one, right, in 22 countries, including the U.S., which is amazing because the ad campaign only ran on Telemundo and Univision, okay? That, that was the only place where that ad ran in the States. Yet it goes to number one in 22 countries. Well, one of the 22 countries is the U.K., and by going to number one in the UK, what it did was have Elvis surpass Beatle, uh, the Beatles for the most number one singles in the UK. Okay. Wow. So 25 years after Elvis died, <laughs> the use of his music in, in a Nike ad causes him to break this historic tie with the Beatles. So I'm going... Karma's a bitch, isn't it? You know, they sue us over revolution and it took us a while, but we got our revenge when we did uh, uh, Secret Tournament. <laughs> I, I thought that would be a nice button for the revolution story. Oh, I forgot about that. But I will, I will, I promise, I'll come on yeah. again and we'll talk about my Angela because that, that is a pretty funny no, story. It's so good. I mean, this is why the power of brand is so important. Oh my gosh, it's so good. Well, Guys, it's time to feed the dog. Um, you know, like uh, we'll, we'll hook up sometime in February and we'll talk about Maya Angelou and what could have been with her and Savian Glover. How's that for a team? Yeah, I love, love it. Cliffhanger. Yes. Stay tuned, people. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Thanks for, thanks for Mark. making time for us, yes. buddy. We appreciate Absolutely. you. Take right, care of yourself. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.